0: Hey everyone, I'm Brandon Odo, and I'm Brian Bowling, and this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. It's Brian Bowling with me, as always, is Brandon Odo. Hey, and we're we're solo, or I guess duo, uh, this week with uh, a case for just the two of us, no guests. So Brandon is going to put me in the hot seat and do a case about rhabdomyolysis, myolysis, rhabdo, rhabdo. We'll just say. You might have to
0: start with pronunciation. I
1: always just say rhabdo because I honestly can't remember how to pronounce the word. So (laughs) it's not that I'm trying to be cool.
0: That's like when you forget somebody's name. So you just call them like buddy. Yeah. (laughs) Hey friend. (laughs) Uh, Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so we've been doing some fun episodes lately, but um, we want to try to get back to sort of the core of what we're doing here, which really is, you know, fundamental critical care. And uh, this potentially is part of that, um, depending on the populations you're seeing, perhaps more so in surgical units, um, especially things like trauma, but anyone can experience it. So you are covering the ICU, and the emergency department calls you about a 34-year-old male. This is actually a, a otherwise healthy guy, but he was uh, caught in a motor vehicle collision, as we say now. They're not accidents. They're just collisions. And um, it was a head-on collision at a pretty good speed. Uh, he was wearing a seatbelt. There was no loss of consciousness. The airbags went off. Um, but the vehicle collapsed pretty well, and he ended up entrapped. He was uh, kind of trapped under the dashboard, uh, mostly with the legs, some component of his uh, his torso. It took, you know, a good 45 minutes to get him freed by the fire department. So he came in by ambulance, and uh, he got a trauma workup, including uh, pan-CTs, and they found he has uh, left-sided rib fractures from four through nine. He has some mild pulmonary contusion. He has a low-grade splenic laceration um, and extensive orthopedic injuries, mostly to his left lower extremity. So he has a left femoral shaft fracture, left tibia and fibula fractures, all pretty complex. So you swing down to the ED to see him and you find that he is, uh, he's awake, a little groggy because he's gotten a lot of pain medicine. Um, but he seems to be generally stable. The orthopedic folks have seen him and, um, they've already, uh, put a pin in his leg and put it into traction. And you talk to them and it sounds like their their plan is essentially to externally fixate the leg for now. Uh, it's very much swollen. And then in maybe a few days, they'll go in and um, do some uh, definitive repairs. Um, but he comes to you because of his polytrauma. And you, you skim through his labs and you see that uh, his H and H is, is okay. He does have a lactate of 4. His CK is about 8,000, and his myoglobin is about 10,000. He has an AST of 600 and an ALT of 400. Someone sent a troponin, which is 0.6. just mildly elevated. He has a a creatinine of 1.8, though, and his BUN is 55, and his potassium is 5.2. So, what are your thoughts about his kind of metabolic
1: abnormalities and management of those? Yeah, so you mentioned rhabdo being more common in the surgical ICU. We see this not infrequently in the neuro ICU as well. Um, there are certain key words I listen for in um, you know the report. <clears throat> you know, in this case, you talked about entrapment and uh, a fairly prolonged extrication. Uh, the the other key phrase that always makes me perk up and think about rhabdo is found down, which is what we get in the neuro ICU, right? Um, elderly lady was found down by her family when they went to check on her um, because these patients will lay on the floor and get rhabdo just from being immobile. Uh, but in this case, so yeah, my first thought is looking at these labs, is that a urine myoglobin that's 10,000? That, that was serum. Serum, okay. Uh Yeah, so his creatinine is not awful. CK of 8,000 is certainly elevated, not the worst I've ever seen, but um, certainly something to um, be concerned about. Do we know any history of this guy?
0: It sounds like he's a generally healthy guy. Um, they're attributing this accident to a faulty stoplight. Um, he just remembers them running into someone, and um, he pretty much has the story you'd expect. His leg hurts. He is upset that he's missing his other plans. (laughs) He doesn't really take any medications and he has no allergies that he knows about.
1: All right. So I think the first thing I would start with is good fluid resuscitation. I'm assuming he's gotten trauma workup. So I'm assuming he's been adequately resuscitated from a trauma point of view.
0: Yeah. I mean, he was hemodynamically stable. Um, His H&H is okay. There's no real signs of bleeding. There is that little bit of splenic injury, but nobody seems too impressed by it. So he's gotten about a liter and a half of normal saline just because he's in the emergency department. But So far, that's it.
1: What's his urine output like? He hasn't peed yet. There's no Foley. So I think I would put a Foley in him. Normally, I would not just put Foley's in people who could pee On their own. But I think in this case, it's important to have a really good idea of what his urine output looks like uh, and what his urine quality looks like. You know, is it uh, normal looking or is it that sort of dark um, Coca Cola colored looking stuff?
0: Okay, so you slip in a foley and you get out about 40, 50 cc's of kind of muddy looking urine.
1: Do we have other labs? On him, you said H&H H was okay, K was elevated, B and Cranin are elevated. Do we have any, th- any acid base? Uh, what do you want, uh, ABG? Yeah, an ABG.
0: <clears throat> ABG looks, um, looks okay. He's uh, about 738. Um, he has a, a bit of a metabolic acidosis with a bicarb of about um, 19, um, but he's hyperventilating down to the PCO2 of 30-ish and compensating. He's oxygenating well.
1: Okay. So I think the first thing to do would be to sort of maximize his fluid resuscitation and see if we can get his urine out- output up and looking more normal. Um, you said he's, he's gotten how much fluid? A liter and a half. Okay. And he's breathing fine? He looks to be. Okay. So I would probably give him at least another liter of LR to start. Just a bolus. Yeah. And see if that changes anything with his urine output.
0: Okay, so you bolst him a a leader of LR. Um, Anything else in the meantime?
1: Uh, No, I don't think so. I mean, his acidemia is not awful. So, uh, and his CK is only 8,000, right? So I think I would probably want to trend that. So I'd probably get CK every eight hours or so uh, until it's declining. Okay. Uh, Just CK, anything else you're going to follow? Um, we can get urine myoglobin since we're sending, since we have a Foley now. Okay. Um, and then any, any, uh, effects on his EKG from that, uh, potassium of 5.2.
0: His EKG looks pretty normal. Okay. Okay. So you bring him up to the ICU. You're going to trend some labs. Are you leaving him on some fluids?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think, um, probably... Put him on some decent maintenance food. We didn't say how big this guy is. He's, he's a normal-sized human. Yeah, 70 kilos. Okay, so I put him on probably 70 kilos, probably 100 an hour to start of LR, um, just to make sure that we're flushing those kidneys really good. All right, so
0: you bring him up to your unit, and eight hours later when you check back and you get some more labs, his CK has now risen from 8,000 to 15,000. Um, his lactate, which someone repeated, is about the same at 3.8. His AST and LT have bumped a little more to 800 and 500. Um, and his creatinine is about 2.2 now and the BUN of 60. K is 5.4. Now his urine um, has increased somewhat and you're getting about 80 an hour, I'm sorry, 60 an hour now.
1: Is he does he appear to be volume adequately resuscitated? How so? Um, I mean, he, you said he's hemodynamically stable. That hasn't he changed. Is. Yeah. Heart rate's okay. BP's looking decent. Yeah. I'd like to see him peeing more. So I think we could turn up his fluids a little bit. Um, what are we going to? He's hit a hundred now. Let's go to 125. Okay. What do you want to see? Well, I'd like to see him making, you know, anywhere from a hundred to 200 an hour of urine just to sort of, clear that stuff out. Um, and I'd like to see a CK trend down not up. So
0: going up on his fluid and you're just going to keep watching him and watching his labs. I think for right now. Yeah. Okay. All right. So same drill. Um, you watch him for another, I think you said Q8. So another eight hours or so. Um, when you check back at the end of that time, his CK is now greater than 40,000. Um, that's seems to be the the maximum on your lab's assay. Um, his lactate is about 4. Uh, his AST has risen to 1,200. His ALT is 800. And his Cratin is now 3 from 2.2. Uh, BUN is 55, which is pretty similar. And the K is now 5.7. His urine output is actually uh, a bit less now. Um, you had a transient increase, but it's now down to maybe 30 or 40 an hour.
1: All right. So I think... Hmm. Well I don't I don't like the way this guy's going. I don't like the direction he's he's taking. Um, I think I'd still start with more fluid, so another liter of LR and then turn him up to like 200 an hour. Um, and then I might consider giving him some acetazolamide. What are you trying to achieve with that? Really just some diuresis and kind of kicking his kidneys into gear um, and sort of clearing. Clearing all this junk out, I'm really starting to worry that he's going to need CRT um, if we can't get him turned around. Okay,
0: so you want you want to see more urine? Yeah. Why acetazolamide versus some other diuresis? Uh
1: That's a good question. Um, I don't know that I have a great understanding of why we would do that. That's sort of just been my experience that that uh, with. With rhabdo, we tend to do that versus like a Lasix. Um, I don't think there's a lot of great um, great evidence for how to treat rhabdo. So I think basically we're, we're looking to um, prevent further muscle damage, prevent AKI, which in this case, this guy's already gotten, prevent worsening of it, I guess. And then um, try to basically... Figure out uh, any potentially life-threatening complications, like from his, um, you know, elevated uh, K or his acidosis.
0: Now you mentioned uh, dialysis, whether that's you know, continuous or intermittent. Mm-hmm. It, does that have the same role here as it would for anybody with renal insufficiency, or is there some disease-specific role that it has? Uh,
1: I think a lot of it is just getting, uh, getting the the um, Uh, I'm stumbling over words today, getting the, the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the, all the junk and the crap uh, out of your, out of your system. Um, Solutes. Not solutes. Toxins. Toxins. There you go. That's a good way for it. You know, that's built up from that muscle breakdown um, and clearing that out. I think at this point I would, I would give a call to the renal folks, just anticipating potential need for that. And where I, where I am Uh, we don't initiate CRRT, the renal guys do. Um, you may be in a different situation if you're someplace where the intensive service can manage CRRT by themselves. I don't know that you need renal necessarily involved at this point. Uh, but like I said, I would probably give them a call because I think that's where we're headed. Okay. So
0: you do reach out to the nephrologist and uh, they are interested in the case, they check out the patient and they say he, he is certainly borderline for perhaps needing uh, renal replacement, um, but they think you could probably watch him a little more. Um, they say maybe follow his labs a little more closely every maybe four or six hours. Um, if his urine output really goes to hardly anything or his K keeps going up, they're going to come dialyze him. They is he's hemodynamically okay. He might tolerate intermittent hemodialysis. So you do that, um, and you get out to about 48 hours. And he, he's kind of inched along throughout that, um, but his potassium didn't really rise any further. And at this point, he seems to have turned around some. Um, his CK has come down to about 4,000 now. His creatinine is still about 3.3, 3, um, but his potassium is coming down to 4.6. And his urine has uh has kind of been up and down, but it's chugging along at maybe thirty an hour. Still, he's been running on your on your fluid for this entire time. So at this point, he's uh eight, almost nine liters positive. He's pretty edematous. Um, where are you headed with him now? Do you want to deescalate some of the things you're doing? Yeah,
1: I think so. You said he's making urine or not making? Yeah, thirty, forty. Okay. Um, you know, one thing we didn't talk about is urine pH. I would probably be monitoring that as well, um, just to see. Sometimes urine alkalization can help with these folks. Um, typically, it's just I just t- do volume resuscitation, you know, uh, with some forced diuresis in there as well. But sometimes urine alkalization can help. Okay, so what are you sending? A UA? Yeah, UA, just for, well, really just for your MPH. So you can send a whole UA though. Okay. And you would do that on admission or you would follow it? Yeah. So we do it on admission. And then um, if we were, if this was a real, like real rhabdo, like you said, with uh, getting his CK up to 40,000 or whatever it was, uh, I would probably do it every four hours if it was abnormal, just to monitor it. Okay. What do you want to see it as? Um. Six to seven. Okay. And what if it's less? So if it's, if it's less than that, um, I would probably give them some bicarb or acetazolamide can help with that as well. Um, just to, to sort of alkalize that. And that's probably, I guess you, to go back to your question of why acetazolamide versus like a uh, ferrosamide or something, that's probably why we would do that for forced diuresis. Cause it, in, in addition to diuresing them can also alkalize things. Uh, if they're acidotic. so Would you
0: think about diuresing someone like this further if they've gotten very fluid positive from your fluid resuscitation?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think if his stuff is headed in the right direction, um, I think I would continue to diures him because now I'm worried about getting into trouble from over-resuscitation. Okay. If he's starting to clear his metabolites and toxins and stuff pretty well, then I think we can uh, go to diuresis instead of volume to get and some of that fluid. stop his fluid. Yeah, yeah. Get yeah. some of that fluid off uh, and hopefully get his kidneys okay. still forcing stuff out, even if it's through drugs rather than volume.
0: All right. So that's probably a good time for us to kind of look at the big picture here. Robdomyolysis. Um, Essentially caused from breakdown of usually skeletal muscle. You mentioned situations like, you know, crush injuries, and that can be from really mild energy to your muscles over prolonged periods. You just lay in the ground long enough. Right. Or, of course, more acute injuries. You know, they talk about it in things like even seizures sometimes. You get hit by lightning, anything where there's significant muscle injury. Um, But, you know, in cases like trauma is certainly a common one. The issue here really is that when you break down muscle, you release myoglobin in your blood, and that is nephrotoxic. You cannot have free myoglobin floating around because it gets stuck in your tubules. So the, the goal here is to try to preserve the kidneys until this stuff goes away, and it does eventually, but in the meantime, you might have a kidney injury. So fluid is really the mainstay of treatment. And like all fluid arguments, there are questions about what you give. So in the old days, it was all about bicarb mm-hmm. and, let say, forced diuresis. So you're trying to force fluid through the kidneys. And they used to talk about things like mannitol for that. Right. Um, and the bicarb, as you said, is to try to alkalinize the urine. The principle being that this myoglobin is a little less likely to precipitate in an alkaline environment. So you'll see things in uh, certain sources about giving um, like an isotonic bicarb drip, you know, the old three amps in a liter of D5 um, until say their urine pH, as you mentioned, is above maybe 6.5. And then we've kind of shifted away from some of that. There's not great evidence for doing the bicarb thing. And especially the the mannitol thing, maybe not so much. So at this point, you know, what are people doing for fluids? I don't know. I I used to, as you said, just give them some crystalloid, probably something like LR, something balanced. Um, I think I've, I've become a little more sanguine about bicarb. I mean, maybe it was after the bicarb ICU trial, which does seem to show some, you know, renal sparing effects in, you know, hyperkalemic patients with the AKI who are acidotic. Um, in a really bad Robdo, I I think I do give Bicarb now,
1: yeah. So I think I am w- thinking back now about uh, the cases that I've seen lately, and I think when you get somebody who's p- uh, sorry, whose potassium is greater than say six, is when I would start using bicarb for resuscitation fluid. As long as it's under six, I'm typically okay with just LR. Uh, but yeah, I think yeah, and you could argue in that yeah.
0: case it's you're not treating the robber you're treating their acute kidney injury, right? Uh, which is sort of its own thing. But this does get into other questions like, let's say you're giving a whole bunch of bicarb-containing fluid and they get very alkalemic, Mm -hmm. then what? And I would, in that case, probably stop it. Or if you still want to give a lot of fluid, you can mix it up. (laughs) You give them some bicarb and some of something else. And I have done that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't usually follow the urine pH, although you certainly can. And people talk about it um i guess i'm not sold enough on the whole idea of alkalizing urine to to use it as an endpoint um but this is all kind of a evidence light zone at best right uh how much fluid to give you know some sources talk about titrating to a urine output um some places just say give some kind of fixed amount uh, you know, over 200 or 300 an hour uh, is what some people say. I, I, what I find is tricky here is that if you have a kidney injury, that starts to affect your urine output as well. So in, like in a case like this, someone is oliguric, what do you do then? Do you still pour in the same amount of fluid? And I don't, I don't know. Um, I kind of feel like if the fluid's not coming out, you're not achieving what you are trying to achieve, which is to flush the kidneys. Right. I mean, the goal is not to make them hypervolemic. That doesn't do anything good for them. Right. The goal is to put fluid in and have it come out again. So if the urine output is really low, I might lighten up on fluids, or maybe you can argue for diuresis. Now, I don't, I don't know that this makes any sense, but there are times when it's made sense to me. If you're putting in a lot of fluid, and they have urine, but it's not matching their output. Rather than let them get liters positive a day, I feel like it might make sense to do some sort of diuresis. Um and I've get, I've done Lasix. I've even done a little bit of Lasix drip to make it kind of just smoothly titratable. I guess you could do something like mannitol. I haven't done too much of the acetazolamide, although I could certainly see an argument for it. But I don't I mean I don't think you're achieving anything too profound here. I feel like it's more about managing their volume status. But I mean you're you are making the fluid come out of the kidneys, so who knows. Right. One of the things that I was taught way back in the day is that you want to trend the CK and you can trend a myoglobin as well. These are similar numbers. The Mm -hmm. myoglobin may, it rises and falls a little sooner. So it peaks sooner uh, and it comes down sooner, which may or may not be useful to you, but whatever. Um, But you want to trend it in the same way you trend like a troponin. And in the same way, it may take some time to peak, um, I've seen as many as 24 hours in some literature, but usually it's rather less than a day. But it should peak and then come down if the injury is over. So it was from a crush injury they had or something. And the reason that's relevant is because there are times when the injury may be ongoing. (laughs) So in a case like this, one thing I might think about is like a compartment syndrome, Mm -hmm. a badly injured extremity. Uh, very much swollen, if it continues to swell, you can start to have ischemia in there. And that would cause a continued rise in your CK. Um, Now, one of the challenges is these numbers can get really high. You know, CK in the hundreds is like nothing. In the thousands is not uncommon. But, I mean, you can be 50,000, 100,000 more in a a real Robdo. And then you usually end up over the limit of your lab. So what you can do is ask your lab to dilute it to give you a real number. They'll just do serial dilutions until they're able to you know, calculate an actual number. So if their max was 40,000, maybe the real number is 150,000, and they'll just dilute it a couple times until they're able to report that. And that uh, may give you the ability to keep trending it. And I wouldn't say that's useful super often, but there have been a couple times when that has been helpful for revealing something like a, a new compartment syndrome. A lot of sources will talk about stopping fluids when um, the CK gets below eh, maybe 5,000, certainly when it's improving. And I think the other big question is renal replacement. And most, most sources will say the only role of dialysis in Robdo is the same as for anybody. It is for renal replacement. If they have other indications like hyperkalemia, Um, you know, hypervolemia, they're getting too acidotic, you dialyze them for the same reasons as you dialyze anybody. There is a misconception that it may help treat the Robdo and mostly that's not true. With the exception of some people have started to play with some methods of that and usually involves special equipment. People talk about using these like super ultra high flux filters on CRRT machines and maybe through that you can clear some of the myoglobin, for instance, um, but it's certainly not kind of standard care. <laughs> um, so mostly you watch them, and if you need a dialyze them, you dialyze them, and that's that. Fluids, yeah, trend labs, as we were doing. Uh, you got to remember, for one thing, that some other enzymes or, let's say, uh, markers will tend to be elevated as well. Your AST and ALT, we think about coming from the liver, but there is some cross you know, positivity with other cells. And if you have a high enough Robdo, you will see a bump there. More so the ASD, but both of them. And that's can easily be attributed to the Robdo alone, as can a troponin. Troponin is pretty specific to cardiac muscle, but not completely. So you will see some troponin leak from a bad enough rhabdomyolysis. Um, you will, of course, see hyperkalemia and maybe more so than in other AKIs because you're getting potassium from these dying skeletal muscle cells as well. I think that may be the big points
1: about Robdo. Honestly, probably 90% of the cases that I see, uh, the CK doesn't get quite that high, and the potassium doesn't get quite that high, and really some decent fluid boluses and Trending things over time will sort of take care of things.
0: Yeah, it's like a real spectrum, right? I mean, yeah. a ton of patients, you admit, may have a CK of a couple hundred, and that doesn't mean anything. Right. And then a, f- you know, a fair amount of people with some kind of reason for it may have CK in the some thousands. And I mean, generally, there's not much to that. You, you give them some fluid. And then occasionally, you'll have these, quote, sort of real raptos. <laughs> you get right. into the right. hundreds of thousands and getting real renal injuries.
1: Right. Um, and I think, you know, our trauma – guys have a protocol for managing rhabdo that's really pretty nice. I keep a copy of it on my phone so I can pull it up anytime I get a patient with rhabdo. And and honestly, ninety percent of the time I sort of pick and choose from it because again, the patients I'm seeing aren't really that bad. Right? Their CK is twenty thousand, twenty five thousand um potassium's, you know, in the high fives and they have a little bit of a acidemia and you give them a couple of boluses of fluid and you maybe diurese them a little bit and just kind of watch the numbers get better. And that's, um,
0: and I guess it's like a lot of diseases that you see a lot of whatever the middle of that bell curve is kind of common things. And then there's always a possibility of much more extreme ones when you may have to pull out, you know, additional tricks right. from your little bag of tools. Right. And then there's all the really mild ones that you don't have to do anything at all. It's definitely more often kind of a an epiphenomenon of other disease. I mean, no one really comes in with just Robdo. Right, exactly. Unless it's, you know, you know, you can have exertion-related Robdo. Like I used to do CrossFit, and that would occasionally happen from a really bad workout or things like that. But generally, it's because somebody is sick or injured in, in other ways. And so it's just kind of a, it's like a complicating factor to their care. And it can be quite complicating. For instance, in a patient who you can't give much fluid to, mm-hmm. and then you got to scratch your head about what what's worth it, and things like that. Um, but in, in some ways, I think it's it's like the patient with a, a demand, you know, coronary ischemia, or a shocked liver, or an AKI. These are just things that happen when you're sick and how much you care about them depends on how bad they are.
1: Right. And I feel like one of the things that we see with this is the phenomenon of just chasing numbers, right? So at what point do you say, okay, we don't need to trend these things anymore. We can just say we're good. And, you know, the more we keep trending, the more we keep finding things that now we feel like we have to to act on. Right. Um And I think, you know, that's one thing with the CK, right? If you keep trending it, uh, at, at what point do you say, "All right, enough is enough"? You know, it's not normal, but it's fine, and we don't have to continue to do stuff about it.
0: Yeah, and I think it's all about your comfort. I mean, to me, it's essentially when it's coming down.
1: I mean, once you've peaked, I
0: don't think there's too much more to do, unless there's some possibility that it could go up again. But right. there might be someone who wants to see it come down to really very normal levels.
1: And yeah, and I I see that um variability a lot you know with like you said certain people will say well no i want it to be down to normal and my general philosophy of it is if it is um once it's peaked i tend to continue checking it every eight hours and get uh if i get three consecutive declines then i can feel like i can call it off and and we can just stop you know that's yeah. a, that's a trend for me, right? That's it's down enough that um, that I'm not worried about it going back up, right? And what i, I mean, I th- like you said, it's not—it's not rocket
0: science. I do feel like one way people can get it wrong is to not be rational about the fluid use. And um, I think one analogy is to pancreatitis. Everyone's heard you have to give people with pancreatitis a lot of fluid, which is true. Um, but do you need to give them uh, fluid in excess of what their physiology seems to demand? I don't think so. So, like in Nurobdo, if they're not making much urine, I don't know that putting far more in than is coming out is helping them unless you can concoct some sort of solution, like combining it with diuresis maybe then, but if you put in 10 liters over 10 hours and they only pee a hundred CCs, I'm pretty sure it's not flushing their kidneys out. Right. So maybe that's a time to step back and think about kind of what you're accomplishing here. And maybe that's indication to turn towards something like dialysis. I don't know,
1: but you know, we get, we get sometimes hung up on numbers and like you said, the it's sort of like early sepsis, early goal-directed therapy with sepsis, right? They should get this much fluid. And so we start giving that much fluid. But like you said, if the, if the urine's not coming out, then are you achieving what you're trying to achieve with the fluid boluses? Or are you just pouring water into their interstitial space? Right.
0: All right, Brian. Any more thoughts on Robdo?
1: No, like I said, I think it is something that seems more complicated than it is. Um, and something like like we said is on this continuum where the majority of cases that you're going to see are in this sort of mild to moderate range, right? Where you don't have to do a whole lot, just trend some numbers and work on getting those kidneys back clean again. Um, you know, And then, then you're going to see some that are severe and, and with really high numbers, and those are always really impressive. But uh, the, by and large, I think what we run into most is this sort of in-between where we feel like we have to do something, but we're not really sure what, and it turns out probably not a whole lot. Right.
0: Be prepared for the extremes, but expect the, the common.
1: That sounds
0: good to me. Um, and let's do something different in a couple weeks.